Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You know, Pim, we're getting a risk-on rally today, but there's one sector that just keeps nagging at everyone. It's kind of raising a red flag. You know, perhaps things are not as good as Is it as raising a red flag from the roof? From the roof, from the housing, from the house, from the housing market. Uh, joining us now to discuss that and everything else under the sun, Jeannie Wyatt. She is Chief Executive Officer and Chief Investment Officer at South Texas Money Management in the beautiful San Antonio, but she joins us here in our 1130 studios. She manages about uh, $3.3 billion. 3.7? 3.7 billion dollars. Excuse <laughs> me. Please forgive me. Um, so grateful that you're here. I want to ask you about the housing market and how you're viewing it because we have gotten a slowdown in sales some areas have seen even declines in certain prices. Are we yes. at the beginning of this? Yes. Good morning, Lisa. Good morning, Pim. No, I do not think um, we're at only the beginning. I think this will be a long time uh, sector challenge for anything housing related. The mortgage bankers, um, the service providers to housing, and obviously the um, builders. Uh, not only is it the interest rate increase, and the Fed likely, especially with these trade talks, is likely to stay on a tightening track because our economy, the outlook now is to continue to have positive GDP. So interest rates will likely continue to rise, but the challenge with housing that I think is not fully appreciated is land prices are now so expensive and um, owners of homes no longer get the full tax benefit of the taxes that they pay, which really penalizes them in states like New York, like California. And so the affordability, net-net, the affordability of housing now, it's just no longer a value proposition. That's the challenge. I'm wondering if you could just step back and speak to the issue that investing is not something that you should enjoy. <laughs> well, you should not be emotional about your investing, but you must invest because stocks are the best investment you can make because stocks reflect um, growth in corporate earnings. It's not mysterious. Stocks reflect uh, growth in corporate earnings, which are amazing this year, continue to be strong. And corporate earnings have a natural um, a natural uh, su succession uh, plan because if if companies don't produce good earnings, they will go away. So there's a lot of pressure on managements to be competitive and to succeed and to have good corporate earnings and thus their stocks stocks overall broadly do very well long term and they're liquid. I, I just want to for a second go back to the housing uh, issue just for one second. I, I'm curious, you're saying that the value proposition isn't there. Does that mean that prices are going to tank or does it just mean that it's going to go sideways? Well, um, I think there's downside. There's downside. For the to, home builder stocks or for house prices or both? Uh, for both. How much downside? 
Well, again, we're in a, a, a good economic environment, so I would say 10 to 15% downside on home prices. Now, of course, the lower-priced homes probably have more downside protection because there's huge demand across the country for homes priced $300,000 or less. But the higher-priced homes, I would say the downside there, again, some states some counties could be as much as 30 to 50 percent including new york yes some some counties yes that's got your attention hasn't that's it? that's daunting 30 to 50 percent declines in some areas in the northeast but that's only if you're going to move if you, and that's if you're going to sell the house very high priced if it's a very high priced home and the taxes have been very high and no longer can you write off all of those taxes. I want to turn your attention now to something that may be benefiting from all this, which is that you can work anywhere, live anywhere. Microsoft is one of the stocks that you particularly like. love Microsoft. Why do you love Microsoft? has been so kind to us. Um, We uh, started putting money into Microsoft. We buy both value and growth stocks. So we started buying Microsoft in 2012 as a value stock, and it's up over 350% since that point in time. But we still get really good upside in Microsoft from this point. So we're still putting new money in Microsoft and we get over the next 12 to 24 months, 20 to 30% upside in Microsoft with the dividend. And that's because their cloud revenue is accelerating. Microsoft Office is still performing well. And um, it's just being very, very well managed. This Today's Microsoft, again, because of their cloud success, they are almost as large a, a provider of servers as Amazon. So um, we think, again, there's a lot of good upside remaining in Microsoft. You're also buying General Electric, right? Um, no. No, our, <laughs> you're like absolutely whatever. not. So Microsoft today is now a growth stock for us. We bought it as value; it succeeded, so now is growth. Uh, a value stock we are putting new money into today is General Motors. General Motors. General I was Motors. Like one of those beaten up G something companies. <laughs> so General Motors, but not General Electric. Not General Electric. No. Okay. No. But thank GM. goodness we have not been in General <laughs> Electric for years. For GM, you like love GM, love GM. Of course, you know the broad market is up today, but there's so much hype about we're at peak auto sales, and yes. We're probably at a near-term cyclical peak in auto sales. but um, And a lot of that is the millennials are saying they're not going to buy cars. But millennials grow up. They form families. And, and autos will become more important to them. But really, the story there for future auto sales is the self-driving vehicles. And GM has strong conviction in this. In fact, they just moved their president, um, Dan Aman, to become head of Cruise, which is the autonomous vehicle uh, area of GM. GM today has about 300 self-driving vehicles in San Francisco. I think 
we will all, all of us, whether we're millennials or we're octogenarians, we will love autonomous vehicles. Well, we'll be looking forward to taking a trip in one of them with you. Thank you very much. Jeannie Wyatt, Chief Executive Officer, Chief Investment Officer, South Texas Money Management, based in San Antonio. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios after the worst month in more than a decade for crude. We're seeing a rebound today. Perhaps it's because of the uh, trade truce, the trade war truce that I guess was struck between uh, President Trump and President Xi Jinping of China. But there also are other aspects to it. Joining us now, Dr. Ellen Wald, president of Transversal Consulting, also a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center and a Bloomberg Opinion contributor. Dr. Wald, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just ask you, why do you think oil is rallying today? Is it because of a more positive backdrop geopolitically, or is it because of OPEC and the likely cuts that they will implement to output later this week? I think it's a combination of OPEC's uh, likely cuts, but also we have an announcement from the premier of Alberta that they're going to be taking some pretty uh, extraordinary measures to cut oil production in Canada so as to relieve the incredible strain on their stored uh, oil, and that that has really helped uh, the price of Canadian oil rebound today. Dr. Wall, do you believe that the change at OPEC with the announcement that Qatar wants to leave will change the politics of oil? I think it's possible that we could see um, the beginning of, of something important. And one of the interesting things that we noticed is that uh, after Qatar announced that it is planning to leave the organization, and I think uh, it does make sense for Qatar, it, it's really had a lot of problems politically with Saudi Arabia. Uh, clearly, they are under an economic embargo from Saudi Arabia, and it probably feels that it makes no sense uh, politically, domestically as well, to sit in meetings and be compelled to go along with Saudi decisions when there's so much animosity focused on them from Saudi Arabia, combined with the fact that they're really a fairly small oil producer and their big focus is natural gas. However, this could kind of signal a maybe a larger sense of unhappiness amongst the smaller uh, oil producers within OPEC. And if enough of them get together and say, hey, we don't feel we're being, uh, we don't feel that the larger producers like Saudi Arabia uh, and Iraq are really taking our concerns into uh, into uh, consideration. If a bunch of them leave, that could really affect OPEC's ability to play a role in the market. Well, at this point, I mean, perhaps perhaps it was uh, emblematic that the uh, that Vladimir Putin and the Saudi Arabian prince greeted each other with the the happiest of of hand slaps and and you know uh, smiles uh, over the weekend at the G20 meeting in Buenos Aires i mean is it does it sort of matter more now the alliance between Russia and Saudi Arabia than even OPEC 
that is absolutely a big concern here because Saudi Arabia and Russia are really the big players in this new OPEC plus alliance. And Putin made this announcement that Russia is planning to continue its participation in this alliance. Now, that doesn't indicate that Russia is necessarily on board with whatever cuts Saudi Arabia wants to make, but it does indicate that they are interested in pursuing this partnership. And that puts the rest of OPEC, uh, that really diminishes their influence and importance uh, in terms of, of OPEC going forward. Dr. Walt, should we make a distinction between the natural gas market and the oil market? I think we really do need to in this case. And Qatar is particularly influential in the liquefied natural gas market. So it's not quite the same as as the United States, where natural gas is very uh, inexpensive and and cheap. Qatar makes a lot of money from its its natural gas. And that's really where it wants to focus its efforts going forward. And that's very interesting because Saudi Arabia has also announced plans that it wants to focus on its uh, developing its natural gas resources. That's mostly, though, for uh, Saudi internal use for domestic use, but still uh, they have indicated they're interested in maybe becoming an exporter of natural gas. And so Qatar may may see that as a little bit threatening to their position. So I'm just wondering from your perspective, if as expected on Thursday, OPEC plus agrees to an output cut in order to bolster prices and reduce supplies, how much do you think oil prices could go up? Or do you think that this is sort of false hope? Well, I think it really depends on how much uh, oil we see. They could end up increasing production as much as, uh, or sorry, uh, cutting production as much as one and a half million barrels per day. And that's not an insignificant amount, and it could send prices rallying maybe for the rest of the year. The, the issue, though, is we're still, you know, down in the, in, for Brent, in the low 60s, not even yet hitting 61. And with WTI, is still uh, 52. So I'm not really sure that um, there's enough to really get us back into the 70s before the end of the year. And uh, it does depend. OPEC may not be able to cut as much as they think that they can. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Uh, Dr. Ellen Wald is the president of Transversal Consulting, non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Global Energy Center, also a contributor to Bloomberg Opinion. Joining us now to tell us all about the world of economics and particularly how it's linked to trade is none other than Mike McDonough. Michael McDonough is the chief economist for financial products for Bloomberg LP, and he joins us here in studio. Mike, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for coming in. Um, what happened last week at the G20 and over the weekend? Did, did we really solve something or did we just kind of punt a little bit? Not that that's bad or I mean, good. but If we want to go with trade war analogies, I'd call it a ceasefire. Okay. So, I mean, it's it's buying a little time to try to come to a deal that's that's sustainable. It takes the risk uh, January 1st off of uh, the tariff level being escalated. So it buys time. Now we have to see what happens with the time. Why? Why was there such a softening in tone from President Trump? It, it probably depends on who you ask. But my personal view on this is um, 
When you look at how markets had been performing recently, um, there's also at the same time been some signs of weakness uh, in U.S. economic growth. At least it might have been going in a direction they don't want to see it go. Uh, and really, when you have to ask yourself why, I mean, there is an argument to be made that maybe the Fed was uh, looking like they might be a little bit too aggressive. But the big other other big uncertainty was trade with China, right? And that these two things combined uh, were were reducing sentiment a bit, and it pointed to potential sell, you know. So I guess that my other question then would be, has anything materially changed from the Chinese point of view with respect to what they're offering as far as you can tell? Or is it just a willingness to make a deal on, on President Trump's side? You know, it's hard to say. But I, I, I don't know a lot about what they had been offering. But, you know, uh, we, we saw the agreement on the uh, opioid exports, fentanyl. Uh, that's something that the president could hang his hat on and say, you know, when you look at where President Trump is on a lot of his agenda, I would say the opioid war is arguably someplace where he's further behind than in other areas. Uh, so this is something he could say, look, this is a win for us. This is something new. I don't think that had really been discussed before. That's there. Uh, then there's the announcement today about auto tariffs. I believe China had announced that they were reducing auto tariff from 25% to 15% back in May for everyone, but then they increased it in retaliation of the U.S., I think, and now they're saying, okay, we're going to get rid of them entirely. That's something. Uh, and when you look at every deal President Trump has done so far, autos has been involved, as has agriculture, so the, the soybean uh, part of it. So, you know, th- th- there is something there. The question is, what will you know, President Trump's appetite be, right? The issues we have with China aren't really the deficit. Uh, it's the, you know, openness of the Chinese economy to U.S. companies. It's the intellectual property theft. And these aren't easy things to fix. Like, this isn't something China could just turn a switch on and say, okay, you invest in anything and we'll stop, you know, the technology transfer. Uh, so it's hard to see how you resolve a lot of this in 90 days. Just to give the detail about the opioid uh, and fentanyl issue, it has to do with China reclassifying them as a controlled substance, right? Yeah, I, I don't know the details of it personally, but yeah, it sounded yeah, it would sound it sounded like it would make it uh, illegal for uh, Chinese distributors to sell into the U.S. Uh, that's in the, some way. That's the goal. Yeah, right. that's the goal. Okay, um, how many products do you think the Chinese will have to buy in order? to be able to enable the administration to declare victory and to have some kind of come together moment. I, I think it's a, the difference is how many do they say they'll need to buy and how many do they actually have to buy. I right. think that, right, um, soybean sales to China have basically gone to zero at this point in time. So I think that you could pretty quickly see those go back up uh, to, to levels that we had seen, you know, last year before these tariffs. And that would be important because I think the, the, the soybean farmers are probably being hit most uh, by what's happening. So I think that, I, you know, I think there, there will be promises of, of reducing, I, th- I think the promise of reducing the tariffs on auto and le- leveling the playing field will go a long way. It's hard to say how much they'll actually buy. The Europeans sell a lot more cars in the China than the U.S. does. So we'll have to see. They'll definitely be buying uh, more soybean uh, because they've gone to zero, so that they have to. I think you could see more purchases of uh, airplanes, etc. But really, when you, when you look at trade with China, uh, we actually run a surplus when it comes to services. Uh, so I think that part of this would be uh, making it a bit easier, if not removing all restrictions for U.S. companies to do business in China. That would actually go a long way, right? That doesn't show up in the 
the goods trade deficit, but it shows off in the overall transfer between the two countries. So, I mean, if you have more U.S. companies in China providing services, that could go a long way towards offsetting the goods balance, which everyone talks about a lot. So how important is it that Lighthizer is in charge of these negotiations now? Yeah, that's that's interesting, because like when you look at... Um, you know, who tends to be more hawkish and dovish uh, in Trump's administration? Lighthouser tends to be on the more hawkish side. So he's now running these negotiations. Uh, so I guess, like I said, we have 90 days. We, we really need to be watching these headlines. Uh, so that it, it, it's not surprising. He is a trade you know, negotiator. That's, that's what he does. So it'll be interesting to see who he's working with, what his rhetoric is like, how frequently are they meeting, who's meeting, what's coming out of the deals or the meetings that they have over the next 90 days. I think there'll be a lot of signals. You recall the last time we were in this position, um, there were instances where they had meetings planned and then they said, well, there's nothing we're going to agree on, so we're not going to meet. So we'll have to read the tea leaves for a while over the next 90 days. And then we're going to read them again for the following 90 days when it gets... Uh you know, and kicked, it, kicked you know, further down. And like right? I said, there's two things we need to look at: China and the Fed. And we have Powell on Wednesday. It would be interesting to see if he mimics his comments from last Wednesday. That would be good. And then see what happens with China. Mike McDonough, thank you so much for being with us. As always, your perspective is always insightful and valuable. Mike McDonough is chief economist for financial products at Bloomberg LP, uh, talking about the latest, uh, I guess, easing or perhaps just kicking the can down the road. We're broadcasting from the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios. Let's turn our attention now to entrepreneurs who make products that people seemingly want to buy because, boy, this company, Calafia Farms, is doing about $100 million worth of business at least a year. It is founded and run by Greg Stoltenpol, who many in the food and natural food market know as the one of the founders of Odwalla, and he joins us here in studio. Greg, thank you very much for being here. I was reading a little bit about your background, and I can we connect your interest in juice and in pressed uh, drinks to your father and his love of the world of citrus? What is that story? <laughs> well, you're going way back. So um, my dad uh, loved to live around orange trees and orange blossoms. In California, in, Southern in California. California. We moved to California when I was seven, and uh, we had to keep moving because as the development of Southern California grew, they kept plowing down the orange groves, and we had to keep moving further and further towards the hills. So anyway, I grew up with the romance of living in an orange grove and uh, just the smell of all those blossoms and everything. So it goes pretty deep in my roots. And we had to start every day with a glass of fresh squeezed juice. Which evolved into a juice company, Odwalla, which you sold. And then Calafia, which focuses on plant-based beverages, almond milk, soy, etc. So I, I'm curious, uh, given the fact that you've sort of been part of this evolution of the health foods and the, and the juice movement, where are we in that? I mean, is it expanding or are we kind of hitting a plateau where people are saying, forget this, come on, let's just do whole milk or raw milk or whatever. Right. Well, there's lots of different things going on, but um, underneath it all, there's huge shifts in the food industry at large, which I think are driving this. But what's driving those shifts are really massive changes in the consumer and where the consumer's head is at and knowledge on the part of the consumer 
and also a globalization of this kind of genzennial phenomena where you really have trends moving simultaneously. When I started Odwalla back in the 80s, you know, things would start on the West Coast and in places like Santa Cruz and San Francisco and then, you know, take some years to get to the East Coast and then take a decade or longer to get to the middle part of the country and then other parts of the world may take 20, 30 years. Now it's really happening. Uh, a trend that can happen in natural products can spread globally within a few years. So uh, now the consumer is really driving the need for change and the industry is behind where, you know, more than 30 years ago when I got started, it was mainly like visionary people like myself and my friends who were coming up with these unique ideas and trying to convince people that this was the right thing to do. Tell people about how you're borrowing from other cultures in order to bring different types of drinks to the public. And I'm thinking here about Latino culture, Mexican culture, and horchata. Right. Well, uh, first of all, our name Calafia Farms is named after the origin of the state of California, which many Californians don't even know. 16th century. Right. And, and even earlier, there was a novelist, a Spanish novelist in the late 1400s who wrote a book and created this character, Queen Calafia, who was the inspiration for the Spanish coming here. And she was a beautiful black queen who was rumored to to have uh, tons of gold so nothing to motivate a conquistador more than beautiful women and lots of gold right so anyway the romance of california spread to the agricultural heritage and so it's it's actually not that foreign and uh that influence has always been in california and california is now the largest producer of almonds in the world produces over 80 something percent so that became the basis of our first large commodity so odwalla was acquired by coca-cola in 2001 i believe for a lot 181 million dollars but you've said that you would never sell calafia and that entrepreneurs should not sell their creations why well, I haven't actually said that I can never sell because it's not just up to me. And I, I'm uh, unfortunately... A so are you planning to sell? Uh, 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 no, not saying that at all. <laughs> but I also can't make a blanket statement. All right. Uh, but, but you're I, reluctant to. But I have been very verbal about what I thought the long-term effect on Odwalla's mission and vision were after Coke acquired it. And uh, I think it can be fairly said that acquiring especially natural product uh, food, foods that are coming out of a craft type movement uh, by large multinational corporations. There's not a extremely long history of success in keeping the mission alive and keeping the purity of those products first and foremost. So we're embarking on a strategy and continuing a strategy of trying to remain independent. And in fact, we're the last fully independent plant-based company of any size left today and we're one of the only uh independent coffee companies of any scale today so uh we hope we can keep it that way and the spirit of that independence is i think important for the categories actually if we went to your factory your facility in bakersfield what would we see 
it's it, it's a bit like Willy Wonka in that we do a lot of things there in a pretty compressed uh, amount of space. I just all yeah. of a sudden imagined, you know, rivers <laughs> of soy milk or almond milk and... <laughs> Oompa Loompas. Well, we we process a lot of type of milk-based commodities, so it's not just almonds. We do oats, uh, we do pea, we we do other grains, and a lot of coconut, uh, a lot of chocolate, the horchata spices, and and a lot of things that go in our cold brew coffees. So the smells are always changing, and there's a constant different stream, and we have flexible packaging lines. So we'll be doing. Uh, ice cold uh, nitro brew on one line while we're running the the mainstream unsweetened almond on another line and and chocolate uh, coconut over on another one so it's pretty fun it's um, fairly automated so we've dispensed from our manufacturing of having a centralized control room so everybody's running around with iPads and iWatches and keeping an eye on all the machines so it's a lot of fun to have your own manufacturing I'm just my imagination's going wild I'm just picturing the scene in Willy Wonka with the chocolate fountain <laughs> Greg Stelton Paul thank you so much for being with us really a pleasure having you on Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.